Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is Rabbi Leon Wiener-Dow, who is a research fellow and a member of the faculty at the Shalom Hartman Institute, as well as rabbi and educational director of the Chavruta Gap Year Program. He's a recent author of the book, The Going, where he offers a meditation on Jewish law. He's published many papers in modern Jewish philosophy, Jewish law, and Jewish education. I've asked him on the program today to discuss the Jewish part of being a Jewish professional and how we can enhance our work through the study of Torah, actualizing our learning into doing. Thank you so much for joining me today, Leon. Um, nice to see you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Michelle, for having me. So we'll start as we always do with your personal journey and how you got to this work. I know this is outlined a bit in your recent book, but I'd love to hear it from you. Well, I think that probably the significant moment, I mean, of course, I had a Jewish upbringing that started from a very young age, but probably I would say in high school, two significant things happened, which led me to the place where I am. First is that at age 16, I came to Israel with a group of about 70 young adults from Houston, sponsored by the Houston Jewish Federation. And it became very clear to me over the course of that six-week trip that if I believed, which I did, that Israel was so significant to Jewish existence and it comprised such a significant component of my own identity, then I needed to take seriously the possibility of living my life there. And this was before the days of the internet. Growing up in Houston, Texas, the most I could get from Israel was by rushing to see the New York Times in the morning because the Houston papers didn't have anything to say. And I thought to myself, if it's so important that the first thing that I'm checking in the morning is what's happening in Israel, then I should probably be living there. So that's probably the first thing. The second thing is I had in my senior year in high school, a philosophy teacher who really taught me not just philosophy, but about living a life in which we take ideas seriously, in which they're not something that we just play around with, but which animate the very decisions that we make and the kind of lives that we live. So he really, I think, forced me to take seriously a lot of the things, a lot of the Jewish ideas that I've been brought up on. And so I think that those are probably the two formative moments in my childhood that would lead me to where I am now. Wonderful. So you got yourself to Israel. What did you do once you got yeah, there? First, I came back after that summer and told my parents, I said at age 16, it still makes me laugh to think about myself saying that. I said to them, I know that you're going to think it's the stage I'm going through and that I'll grow up past, but I'm going to move to Israel. And so pretty much from age 16, I was geared towards it for reasons that I still have difficulty articulating now. I didn't move immediately and I didn't move immediately upon finishing high school. I did my BA in the States, but all the time I was geared towards coming to Israel. And a year after finishing college, I moved here and I've been here since 1992. All of my adult life, I've lived here. Awesome. So when you first got there, did you know what to do? Did you start in some kind of formal program or? So my first year here, I was on a fellowship called the Durot Fellowship. And the Durot Fellowship was designed for people who would be future lay leaders in the United States. And during the process, they specifically didn't want people who would make Aliyah. And I told them, <laughs> I was honest with them throughout the process that I was thinking very seriously about it. But I told them also that I had a brother who had thought seriously about it and came back to the States. So right. 
who knows what would happen. So I came here and my first year I was learning at the Pardes Institute and doing an internship. And then the following year, I began a master's in Jewish philosophy. And that was probably when I started my adult, serious engagement of Jewish ideas and higher levels of Torah learning in earnest. So I did a master's in Jewish philosophy. And then later on, I met Rabbi David Hartman. During the course of my master's, I guess I had already met him. And eventually, he invited me to study with him for personal ordination, rabbinic ordination. And so I did that and then eventually went on and got a doctorate in philosophy as well. So was this kind of work always something that you were interested in? Did you just kind of fall into it as a passion as you kind of grew in your studies? Well, actually... Earlier on, when I was an undergraduate, I studied a lot of philosophy, and I was enamored by someone by the name of Michael Walzer, who's a political philosopher. And I did a lot of work on cultural criticism and being a social critic. And I spent a lot of my time kind of at that early age thinking that what I really wanted to do was be a social critic and try to help society, the society that I'm living in, more itself to its ideals and look at where it's not fulfilling its aspirations. And then I had the fortune of meeting my wife who said, you spend too much of your time and energy being critical and you need to figure out some way of doing what you need to do in this world, which is more constructive. And I think at that point, in a certain sense, that became the opening for a possibility that I really hadn't considered, which was to become a rabbi. I went into education at that point in Jewish education. I think first and foremost of myself as a Jewish educator. And in fact, my decision to study with David Hartman, Rabbi David Hartman, blessed memory for ordination, I actually told almost no one about it for the first year of my studies. I felt very weighty and I felt a lot of pressure and a lot of responsibility. And also it seems almost the kind of pretentious position to put myself in. Right. I don't throw the title around very much because it kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. It was more for yourself than for other people. Yeah, in a lot of ways it was. And I actually told and once wrote Rabbi Hartman a note to this effect that more than anything, it was an important process for me to have his vote of confidence. In other words, his smicha, his ordination was and still is in many ways for me, someone of stature, who's a very significant teacher and role model in my life, whose statement was, in essence, that he thinks that I'm worthy of teaching Torah. I mean, every one of us, I think, is many times in our lives, unfortunately for me, there are more often than I would like when I'm filled with doubt and self-doubt and wonder whether I'm worthy of what I'm doing. And having personal rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Hartman was and still is a very significant kind of sustaining and nurturing source of confidence. So talk a little bit about the Institute and its work and a little bit about the Chavrita Gap Year program that you work with. So the Shalom Hartman Institute does work in the area of Jewish pluralism and Jewish identity. I would say that the Institute is really at the forefront of staking out an area in which the critical study of Judaism and the creative aspirations of Jewish learning meet. That is to say, where you can be very, very creative in terms of your thought process and in terms of what you think Judaism ought to be and where Jews as a people ought to be going, place of Israel in Jewish identity, and not forego or set aside one's critical faculties. There's a think tank at the Hartman Institute, but there's also a very clear program of action for both the North American and Israeli audiences. The main campus is in Jerusalem, 
and the Institute works with the Israeli school system, training teachers who work within the Israeli school system and strengthening their knowledge of Judaic studies. The Institute works with Israeli young adults. The Institute has a newly found program for creating essentially a new kind of Israeli rabbi, which is interdenominational, post-denominational. Mm. The Institute has a high school, a boys high school, experimental boys high school, and a girls high school as well. That's all on the Israeli side of things. And of course, there's all the scholarship that the Institute scholars do. And then the Institute does a tremendous amount of work for and in North America. So there's the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, which engages a lot of different communities across North America, has scholars of its own. And then we work with rabbis. There's a rabbinic leadership program, which works with rabbis from all over North America, as well as with Hillel professionals, as well as lay leaders. And there's also a new Muslim leadership initiative that works creating dialogue and learning process for Muslim leaders in North America and work with Christians as well. So there's a lot of interfaith work done as well. Mm -hmm. So I would say that that's kind of a broad overview of what the Hartman Institute does. The Haruta program is a very, very unique program, an opportunity in which 30 North Americans and 30 Israelis come together for a year of study and shared communal life. Essentially what happens is the Israelis are between high school and the army and the North Americans are between high school and college. Mm -hmm. And so this is really, I would say, a unique and perhaps the last opportunity to catch them in the same frame. And it's a roller coaster of a journey. It's very, very, very significant. Serious relationships, meaningful relationships are formed. Unbelievable conversations are had. There's a sense of complexity, but a real sense of shared purpose and joy in a community that's made a very, very heterogeneous community because from the North American side, there are participants who are Reformed Jews who went to public school, and there are participants who are conservative, and there are participants who are Orthodox who studied in Yeshiva Day School all the way through mm. 12th grade. On the Israeli side of things, there are those who come from a quote-unquote secular background in Israel, which means that they really have no religious affiliation whatsoever and probably minimal knowledge of Jewish texts and identity. And there are Israelis who also studied in yeshiva through 12th grade. You have a very, very, very heterogeneous community of 60 young adults, and it's challenging and it's magical what happens over the course of that year. The North American kids, are they coming like you in the sense that, you know, maybe Israel might be their home or is it, you know, open to the experience of learning? The North Americans are coming for the purpose of having a gap year before going back to the state and attending colleges. And I would say in a kind of similar way to where the Drug Fellowship found itself with me, we don't want the North Americans to stay. Obviously, if one or some of them, it's the right move, then, you know, blessed be their journey. But there's no sense in which that's a desire of ours. In a certain sense, the opposite of the case. What we're really looking for is to create a conversation of complexity and of depth between people who are going to be future significant players and members of World Jury's two most significant communities. So in a lot of ways, the payback, at least on the North American end, the payback is not just over the course of the year. If we have 30 North American graduates every year, then that means that over time we have on every single year, we have 120 graduates on campuses throughout North America. 
Right. Uh, and that's a tremendous, tremendous asset. That means that North American young adults on campus will be able to speak and address about the complexity of the Israeli reality and about the complexity of negotiating relationships with Israel and with Israelis and working out an adult, sophisticated North American Jewish identity, which has a very clear sense of the reality and complexities of Israel. And that is a tremendous asset to the North American Jewish community, to Israel as well, of course. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and start talking about your book that is, it's now out, correct? It is out. It is out. out. by Paul Greg McMillan. Give me a little bit of background before we dive into kind of the contents of it. What kind of inspired the book? How did it start? Where did kind of the origins come from? There's a long answer and the short answer. I'll start with the long one. And then when I tire you, I'll get to the short one. The long one is that I did a doctorate in philosophy and I was looking at a thinker by the name of Franz Rosenzweig, who was a German Jewish philosopher, probably, I mean, I think the most significant Jewish thinker of the 20th century, but anyone will say he's definitely top five. So he got at a young age, ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, what is known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and he died very young. And the reason that's significant is that he grew up in an assimilated background and almost converted to Christianity and then decided that if he was going to convert, he should first learn a little bit of Judaism first to know what he was leaving. And then what happened is that he decided a month later not to convert. And the rest of his adult life, he spent learning and becoming educated Jewishly. And he wrote a very, very significant book called The Star of Redemption. But his life ended very, very short. And he spent the last, I think, six years of his life paralyzed in bed. And it was a short life. So he wrote in one of his last letters that when he finished The Star of Redemption, and he thought that he had many years to live, he would spend a couple of decades studying Jewish law and Talmud and eventually write a book on Jewish law. And I wondered, he never got to it, of course, and I wondered for many, many years, if he had gotten to it, what would it have looked like? Right. And so my doctorate, which I then turned into a book, which I published in Hebrew, is an attempt to construct an approach to law based on Rosenzweig's thought. So that's the long background as to what led me to my book. That is to say, I was interested not in writing an academic book about what Jewish law, according to Rosenzweig, could look like, but what I think Jewish law really is about. And I think Rosenzweig had deep, deep, profound intuitions, even though he didn't have a deep knowledge of Jewish law. I think he was barking up a lot of the right trees. So right. a lot of ways, a lot of ways, what I was after was to articulate a vision of Jewish law that I believe in and that is philosophically responsible and sophisticated and theologically significant, but one in which we don't have to suddenly put our thinking selves aside. Part of what I'm after is to kind of create a conversation about Jewish law in which we're not shying away from the hard questions, but we're also not providing kind of prepackaged answers. So right. that's the long version. The, the short version, which is a very short version, is that mm -hmm. I was doing a postdoc at Bolt the Law School at Berkeley, where I had a remarkable year as a postdoctoral fellow, and I pitched them this as a project. And so that's really how it began. It began in that year, and then I continued it and finished it once I returned to Jerusalem. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. This episode has been made possible through the partnership with the American Hebrew Academy 
in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is an international Jewish college prep boarding school. Their holistic curriculum includes experiential learning, competitive athletics, creative arts, and leadership development. You can learn more about their educational philosophy at AmericanHebrewAcademy.org. Before returning to my conversation with Leon, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode. Liz Fisher is the Chief Operating Officer at Repair the World, who discusses with me how this unique organization engages young Jewish adults in service learning experiences and her own path into leadership. Here's a clip from our upcoming conversation. We often say at Repair the World that the service is most effective when you can't quite tell who's volunteering and who's being sort of volunteered for. And I think that we have a tendency to think about volunteer service as there's a group of, quote, helpers and a group of people being helped, right? And that's not the way we conceptualize it at Repair the World. The way we think about it at Repair the World is how can we be in partnership in the communities we work with to really work together with local community members to create the transformation that they want to see. And what's interesting for us is many of the communities that we're working in are rapidly gentrifying communities. There are lots of young people, primarily white, moving in. There are longstanding communities of color. And part of what we do is provide space and opportunities for those two groups of people to meet each other and for the newcomers to really understand and learn from the long-term residents of the community what's made that community special for so long, what that community's goals are, and how they can be really partners and allies in preserving that and helping local community institutions thrive. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Liz in the next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Leon. So it has a bit of your own journey. It kind of has a bunch of just ways you kind of use the term halakha a lot throughout the book and kind of as this focus. Yeah. So just kind of elaborate a little bit on sort of this idea and this concept, and we'll kind of bring that into the Jewish part of being a Jewish professional and how the themes in your book and the way we see ourselves and why we're doing the work we're doing under a Jewish umbrella and what that means and how we can elevate that a bit in our own lives to translate that into our work. I would say that the most significant concept that I try to articulate in the book is what the halakha is really about is doing what we can't say. That is to say that there's the written word and there's the spoken word and they go a very long way. And people like me who make our livelihood from words are big fans of how important language is and big supporters of how important it is to talk and to write. But there's an enormous amount of life and maybe the most important parts of life, which maybe informed by language or inspired by language, but aren't limited to language. And that's the world of action. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to articulate is the way in which really what I think the halakha is about at a deep level is an attempt for us to respond to the divine through action. That's what it means at the broadest level. At the broadest level, what it means to live a life committed to halakha is to believe that the Torah speaks and the divine speaks to us, but we respond through deed. That what we do, the life that we live, is the most important thing. So in that sense, Jews are not Kantians. I mean, there have been lots of philosophers like Hermann Cohen, who is Rosenzweig's teacher, who try to 
wed together Judaism and Kantian philosophy. But more than intention for Jews, what matters is what you do and not what you intend. And so what the halakha is about is the sanctity of our deeds and our lived lives. That's at the broadest stroke, what I'm trying to articulate in the book. Now, in terms of what does that mean for someone who's devoted their lives to Jewish service as a Jewish professional? I think in a lot of ways, that means that Jewish professionals are exactly what many people think rabbis are, which are token Jews. That is to say, this is one of the good things about living in Israel is that I was able to keep it a secret from my children for many, many years that I'm a rabbi. Uh, right. and in, <laughs> you think I'm joking, but in now fact, I believe it. <laughs> we spent one Passover at Ramah in Ojai, and I was doing teaching there. And during the meals, they would announce after lunch or after dinner, Rabbi Leon will give a class on such and such. And one of my daughters, who I think was about eight years old or ten years old at the time, leaned over to me and she said, "Why do they keep calling you Rabbi Leon?" Yes. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, because I'm a rabbi. Yeah, I hate to break it to you. <laughs> yeah. Now I say that because one of the luxuries of being in Israel is that in a certain sense, token Jews don't fulfill the same function in Israel that they do in diaspora Jewish communities. So the rabbi is not fetishized, not made into a kind of token Jew, rabbi this, rabbi that. And I think that in a lot of ways, what Jewish professionals do is exactly the same thing. They are the quote-unquote professional Jews. And that means for many Jews that they can let their guard down. Uh, That is to say, oh, well, someone else is playing it out. Someone else is the full-time Jew, so I can be a part-time Jew. That's a source of relief. That's a source of constancies for some people. That's a source of release for many people. And so I think that in an articulated positively for the Jewish professionals, what that means is, is that they have decided to take the mantle of responsibility for what the Jewish community is doing and for how the Jewish community is acting and playing itself out, whether it's in an area of education or whether it's in an area of relationship to non-Jews or whether it's in a relationship of developing Jewish identity on campuses, whatever kind of Jewish professional that person is, what they're doing is they're assuming a leadership position within a certain segment or a certain area of the Jewish community's action and leading the way. From my understanding of halakha, given what I think halakha is, which is Jewish communal action, broadly understood, then I would say Jewish professionals are key agents in articulating and playing out the way the Jewish community is living its life. And that's, you know, not a passive thing. I think sometimes we rely a lot on, you know, our past experiences or just our identities being a Jew, but you know, 99.9% of what we do is secular, right? We're sending emails and I'm making a directory and you know, I'm doing an event and all these things that have no Jewish context in them whatsoever. And it's a very active process to decide I need to be learning and growing and reflecting within these Jewish laws and Jewish values that then influence your actions, which make your work in the Jewish community or not in the Jewish community, but Jewish in how we're treating each other and how we're helping other people to learn and reflect on how they are also treating, you know, other people, which is an active process. You have to actively want to improve yourself ongoing in that way. I remember once hearing someone say about moving to Israel, that you can move to Israel for the ideology, but what keeps you here are the cucumbers and tomatoes. (laughs) By which he meant that you can be committed to the importance of Israel or any number of ideals that you think Israel stands for. But there's day-to-day life in Israel. And Mm -hmm. if you suffer from day-to-day life in Israel and you don't like the cucumbers and tomatoes here, 
or you're not passionate about how much crunchier the cucumbers or less waxy they are here than there, then you won't stay. And I think that there's truth in what you're saying, which is that if you're a Jewish professional who's living a committed life in which what you wake up in the morning and go to sleep having just finished doing is your work as a Jewish communal professional, then that means that at the meta level, your life is informed by those ideas. And now you say, well, wait a second, but you know, there's the meta level, but then there's what I'm doing piece by piece. There's the tomatoes and the cucumbers. There's the emails that I'm sending. There's the meetings that I'm going to. There's the staff meeting that I'm running. And how are all of those things informed by and reflective of my Jewish commitments? So there you're right. I think that there's a lot of burden there and there's a sense of responsibility. And I think that in a lot of ways, we all have that. We have a sense that in the same way that we sense that when a rabbi is caught being a peeping Tom and we expected more from that rabbi, we also have that same expectation of Jewish communal institutions. We expect mm -hmm. Jewish communal institutions to be teaching, to be acting in a way that is reflective of Jewish values, that the staff meetings are run in a way in which people's words are valued and that disagreement is something that is not shunned, but is that is valued and that is given proper room and holy space. There's a sense that people's commitment to justice is going to go hand in hand with whatever communal or institutional work they're doing. We have a often unarticulated but still existent sense of what those core Jewish values are. But you're right, you're 100% right, that that does not exempt us from the process of learning. I must tell you that one of the things that I love doing when the Hartman Institute sends me to North America is to go as I did just last month. I did it in San Francisco at the JCRC to go and do text study with people who are working in the trenches, so to speak, and doing justice work in that particular community and struggling with a lot of the things about what it is to be involved in justice work when someone is labeling me or someone is viewing me as an oppressor or whatever the issues are. And to take that moment or that hour, or that hour and a half to engage in text study and to engage in reflection. And that's what Torah study is about. It's supposed to be something which is intellectual and challenging and discovery. But ultimately, what it has to be is something that affects the way we act. If our time in the Beit Midrash, so to speak, learning Torah doesn't affect us, doesn't transform us, and we leave the Beit Midrash, we finish our Torah study exactly the same person that we went in, then it's failed us and we failed it. So I think that you're right that part of what it means to be a Jewish professional is to take that responsibility seriously. That's very difficult to do because life is very demanding and we have family and we have children and we have friends and we want to have time to ourselves and we have work and the work itself is very demanding and taxing. And then to add to that the additional sense of responsibility or burden that I have to somehow be learning things right. <laughs> uh, and raising, you know, but I think that in a deep level, those are the moments of raising our heads and looking and getting inspired and reorienting ourselves and regetting our bearings. Those are those kind of formative moments that then not just sustain us, but really direct us in our work and keep us from losing track of the initial ideals that brought us to what we're doing. And now, do you do any tech study or learning with your colleagues at the Hartman Institute? I do. I just today, well, with colleagues and with friends. But yeah, I'm very, very fortunate to be a research fellow at the Institute. And that means that 
There are about 35 of us. There are different seminars. I participate in a theology seminar. In addition to that, I have Karut, the study partners, two study partners, that once a week I get together with them for an hour, an hour and a half, and totally change gears. So just today, I finished interviewing a candidate for next year's Karuta program. And the knock on the door came, and it was my Haruta to study, and he's a professor at Hebrew University of Jewish Thought, and we took an hour and a half and did study. And then he went, and I finished the emails that I had to get done and finished preparing things for tomorrow's day. So I'm very much in need of that time of learning and being inspired and being challenged by ideas, being challenged by the ideas in the text, and being challenged by the ideas of whoever I'm learning with. And when I don't have that over a long period of time, I definitely feel like I'm in a desert and the routine starts to get too great for me. Well, that's why I feel like the responsibility of the organization in touting the being of a Jewish organization, right? What a novel concept to have quarterly tech studies with your, you know, with your staff. And you know, sometimes you have non-Jewish staff and you know, maybe how interesting for them to hear a bit of Torah, to hear the experiences of their colleagues and to together, you know, whether you do it yourself or not, and living those Jewish values through active practice to bring your staff together in that, right? You're a Jewish organization and, you know, you might bring your staff together to look at your strengths or to hear from somebody about how to manage your time better, right? These secular elements that I touched upon before, you know, really kind of being intentional and thinking about how can a staff or how can a team be strengthened through this kind of learning together? I'll tell you, there's the Haruta program. We have our own staff and the head of the program decided this year, I mean, it might sound funny given what we just said, but until this year, we as a staff did not learn together. And the head of the program said this year, we really need to learn together. And I was not at all opposed, but I was not going to lead the way. And in fact, I even thought to myself, well, you know, okay, we'll do it. But, you know, because she said, and it's been been tremendous. It's been tremendous because it's formative and it builds community and it orients us. With my other Chavrut, we were studying a book called the Esh Kodesh, which was written in the Warsaw Ghetto, Drashot, sermons that were given in the Warsaw Ghetto. And he talks about what it is to rejoice in someone else's failure. And the difference between having joy that I didn't fail and having joy that I learned through someone else's failure. And it was a fascinating discussion in which it was just so clear that every single person that I know and every single workplace that I know needs to ask itself that question. When is it that I am able to just take joy in my success? And when is it that someone else's success is hard for me? Mm -hmm. And when is it That if I'm honest with myself, when someone else trips or falls, there's a part of me that's kind of either laughing or glad it wasn't me. Mm. And then I need to ask myself questions about that. There's a way in which the emails that I send, you know, as you said, or the way that I'm speaking to a colleague, or the way that I'm feeling inside when a colleague or a rival organization or an enemy organization fails, those are all conversations that the Torah beckons. And it is definitely the case that our work and our deeds are more thoughtful and more compassionate if we've engaged in that kind of study. So you're right. I think in a lot of ways, it's the responsibility of the heads of Jewish organizations and programs, like the head of the Chavruta program that said, you know, hey, we got to be learning together because it forms communities and it forces us to have those really, really important conversations, which then are not just abstract conversations. They will affect the way that we do our work and the way that we live our lives. 
Right. And then the way you say we're a Jewish organization and someone doesn't say, well, why? You know, what makes you Jewish? Right. It's able to say, well, this is what makes us Jewish. We always study right. together. We have these specific, you know, values that we're guided by. We're constantly reevaluating and learning. And, you know, to be able to articulate the what is the Jewish, I think is something that a lot of organizations can benefit from being intentional around. I think that that's 100% right. What you said about Jewish organizations having non-Jewish members or participants, there's no greater contribution to one's learning process in this particular case as a Jew than having someone who comes from outside of that system come and learn it with you. It's the equivalent of having someone come and visit a country that you live in. Suddenly you see things in a new way because now you're seeing things, you're suddenly having to explain something that you thought was self-evident. And now once you try to start to explain it, you realize, oh, wait, actually, I didn't understand that. Or mm -hmm. actually what I was used to thinking, I'm now kind of, that sounds really funny or uncomfortable when I explain it to someone else. Or no, now that I explain it to someone else, that really makes me proud or committed to it. Right. So there's a way in which that interface is not something to accept begrudgingly, it's something to welcome. I remember teaching a group also for Hartman, I remember going to the San Francisco Jewish Museum, amazing museum in San Francisco, and they were opening up an exhibit and the dossier there is not Jewish. And we just had, and with the Jewish and non-Jewish members of the staff, we just had the most important tech study about creation and chaos, which was Great. directly related to the exhibit. But again, raising very, very serious questions, existential questions, and questions that related to the show at the museum. And every single person in that room had a really, really significant voice. And you don't know what happened after that, right? You don't know when somebody went home and was stewing on something thought about something, they went to work and I was like, you know, I really didn't realize this and that other thing. And you know, I'm really going to start doing X, Y, or other Z, you know, and it doesn't have right. to be such a talkless conversation, right? It doesn't have to be like, right. how do you manage your time? Or you answer right. five emails a day, right? That it's something that is a little at a higher level intellectually that you're pulling out of these conversations, not, you know, straight things that are relevant to our work, but things that are relevant to us as people. And right. then how that can influence our work. Yeah, for sure. And regarding the point that you said about not knowing where people take it, I actually mentioned in the book, in, at the beginning of the second chapter of the book, I mentioned something, an instance in which I was at a learning session. I wasn't the one doing it. And the two people doing the learning session asked everyone to write something down on a piece of paper. And then everyone left the room and I was cleaning up the room afterwards. They asked the people to write down two things that they wanted to change in themselves. And I was cleaning up the room afterwards. And there was some guy that I had noticed that I thought came for the free pizza because it was a Hillel event. And then he got stuck in the corner of the room and he couldn't leave. I felt really sorry mm -hmm. for him. And yeah, I felt terrible for him. I kind of looked, he looked so miserable. And then I was, I was cleaning up the room. I saw that on his desk, there was a piece of paper and I didn't know him and I didn't know who he was. I'd never see him again. So I didn't feel like I was violating some trust by opening it. And I opened it up and I still have that piece of paper in my bag. He wrote down smoking and using people. These were two things that he wanted to change. And I thought to myself, you simply never know when you're engaged in serious learning, serious Torah study, you simply do not know what people are taking with them, how seriously they're engaged, and the way in which the ideas that they're learning continue to reverberate and influence upon them after they leave. And there's something amazingly powerful, and there's this amazing, amazing opportunity that opens up. And you're right, those things have some kind of echo. They have waves of influence and impact beyond that initial moment when it takes place.
Wonderful. Wonderful. So what's some advice that you might have for Jewish professionals and considering a listening audience in Israel or in North America, you know, trying to do work under this umbrella, this title, I don't know, this charge, right? Under, <laughs> under the Jewish name and the Jewish identity, what's some advice that you have for them? I don't know that I like to give advice. Maybe what I would give is an appeal. Great. Uh, or a plea. And I think that the appeal would be as minimalist as this might sound, I think that it's quite maximalist, which is to take the responsibility seriously. Mm-hmm. That's to say, there's a way in which, you know, when you're in the daily grind and you don't lift up your head to look left and right or look at the horizon, you don't necessarily realize the significance of what you're doing. But then there are moments and there are intersections in our lives when something causes us or something enables us to see what's hidden in what's really going on in our work. And lots of times what we really need is to be reminded of that. Because, you know, in a lot of ways, what enables us to not be our highest selves is the fact that we don't think that what we're doing is significant. Right. And if we really think that what we're doing today, if I really think that the email, the the way that I phrase myself in this meeting or the way that I act to this colleague, or the way that I interface with this representative is of significance, then that affects the way that I will act. So I guess my appeal would be to take seriously the weighty responsibility of being a Jewish professional. I teach Hillel professionals. I tell them that in a lot of ways, I mentioned to you my high school philosophy teacher, but the other very, very significant formative influence in my life outside of my family was my Hillel rabbi at college. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was really the one, he and his wife were really the ones in a lot of ways who steered me into Jewish adulthood. And it's not just Hillel professionals. There's lots of different Jewish professionals who are the interface and they are the token Jews, those professional Jews who people are going to come into interaction with. And that is a very, very, very significant and holy endeavor. So my appeal would be to take seriously that responsibility and that, and that privilege, because it's a privilege. It's a privilege to live in Israel, and, and it's a privilege to be a Jewish communal professional. Problem is that lots of times we're burdened by the responsibility or by the onerous tasks that are involved, and we sometimes forget to uh, appreciate what a privilege we have to, to be able to live the lives that we do. Absolutely. Beautifully articulated. Wonderful. So let's bring it back to you a little bit. You have five children, uh, you know, in your study, you do the work of the Hover to Gap Year program, you have your own Hover to study groups. So how do you keep it all together? What are some techniques or tools or things that you use, uh, maybe other than study, <laughs> that help you kind of keep everything balanced? The most significant thing I do, my time at home is very, very significant. That was for me early on, thanks to my wife, I already mentioned her once, I'll mention her again. When our first child was born, it's hard for me to imagine. She's about to turn 20 and she's in the army now. But when she was first born, by the nature of things, I was able to go right back to work and my wife was nursing and on maternity leave and not. She said, you're not able to kind of fully fathom how significantly your life has changed and you need to kind of do a reaccounting. So in a lot of ways, she and my children and the home that we build are the anchor in my life. And it's really, really easy for me to get lost in the number of things that have been unresolved at the end of the day or the number of things that I still have to do. 
And one of the most significant things that I do is I, I say goodbye to work. And if I have to revisit it for an hour at nighttime after the children are asleep, I do it. But I try not to do that as well. So that's the most significant thing that I do. I do other things to keep my sanity. I listen to a lot of music. I exercise in the morning. And sometimes, which is too often when I haven't slept enough and my wife says, you know, you really need the extra sleep. I explain to her that more than I need to sleep, I need the exercise in the morning, which is when I go on a walk or do my rowing machine and, and it clears my head and allows me to come and enter my day in a kind of balanced way. And so those are very, very significant for me. I also happen to love basketball. So, you know, and I love nature. Nature I find very, very nourishing. So we try to get out every week or so to go for a hike. And Israel has the advantage of being very small. Even though there's lots of traffic, you don't have to go very far to get somewhere pretty. And warm. And warm, exactly. Yes. <laughs> As one of my brothers once said when I was picking colleges, never underestimate the importance of good weather. As somebody who moved from LA to New York, I am feeling yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, wonderful. Well, are there anything else from our conversation? Anything else you'd like to mention here as we close up? No, I just want to I, I thank you for having me and tell you again that I hope the listeners understand how significant what they're doing is Jewishly. Lots of times it's in the same way that um, my children can kind of look up to me and say, oh, you're a rabbi. So I think in a lot of ways, there's a way in which we can lose bearing regarding the significance of what we're doing and significance in a small level and significance at a big level. One of the shortcuts that Israel gives to people who live here is that we have a clear sense of Jewish history being made here. It's very, very clear when the Jews have their own state that what goes in the headlines is Jewish history being made. But the truth is that Jewish history is being made in every corner of every Jewish community and every Jewish communal organization mm -hmm. um, throughout the world and throughout North America. And if we take that seriously, it's a responsibility. It's an opportunity and it's a responsibility. And it's something, as I said before, for which we need to be infinitely thankful that we're able to take our small part in. Well, thank you so much for being on the program, Leanne. Really appreciate all your wisdom and your work and how you're influencing lots of professionals out there. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you very much for having me. One question we as Jewish professionals seem to be continually asking ourselves is, what makes our organization Jewish? Is it because those who work for the organization are Jewish? Most organizations I know have non-Jewish employees. Is it because those who benefit from our work are Jewish? Not necessarily. Is it because the name of our organization is in Hebrew or has the word Jewish in it? Well, it's definitely not true for many newer organizations in our field. So we ask ourselves, what makes our organization Jewish? And if the answer is that we're guided by Jewish values, values that one could argue are shared with many religions in the world, then how does your organization live those particular values? How are the values of ongoing learning in a deep, meaningful, personal, and spiritual way rooted in your organization? Do you agree that this type of engagement is important in what makes your organization Jewish? Even when we have non-Jewish employees serving non-Jewish populations under seemingly non-Jewish names, if not, what makes your organization Jewish? And is that an area worth examining in your organizational culture? We want to thank our partner for the last few episodes, the American Hebrew Academy in Greensboro, North Carolina, where intellectually curious teenagers engage in a holistic curriculum. We look forward to sharing a conversation with Glenn Drew, 
the Chief Executive Officer and General Counsel in the coming weeks. This program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, how to start your own podcast, and more on our website. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. 